Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specialises in community organising. We work with non-profit and community-based organisations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe to develop campaign strategies, train engagement staff in leadership and power building and help you execute your campaign with data-driven tactics and actions. And in 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also proudly brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have the experience you need on your side when something goes wrong. They know the law inside and out and will explain every detail without legal jargon so you can feel comfortable and fully understand your situation. They know how the system works and have the expertise and resources to continue standing up for clients on matters where others might just give up. Uh, find out more by visiting their website at morrisblackburn.com.au. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, uh, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday and this one is out on a Friday and dives into the progressive campaign issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad and we're staying abroad. Um, this is our final episode whilst we are on the road over in the United States. We're going to sit down with a good friend of mine who we've had on the show before. You may remember from a, a podcast we did at the start of the year. In fact, Janae's been on a couple of times. Janae Wartell, who's a democratic strategist. Um, Janae obviously most famous because she was the uh, director, the campaign director for the Georgia runoff, which was the two... Uh, elections to elect the two senators, the two spots that were up for grabs after Trump had lost uh, the 2020 presidential election. There was a runoff in uh, in January uh, the next year, 2021, and uh, two positions for the Senate. If the Democrats won both, then they would then get control of the Senate, which was critical, uh, and they did. Uh, they elected uh, John Ossoff and Reverend, uh, Reverend Warnock uh, and the campaign director from that campaign, uh, was Jono Wartell and she's back on the show today to give us a bit of a briefing, a preview of the upcoming November uh, um, midterm elections in the United States. So uh, check out today's episode with uh, Jono. Uh, if you like the show, uh, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Stitcher um, and to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify when you're done listening to today's episode and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser and for all updates Follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get today's episode. Okay, we are taping this one on a Friday afternoon on the lands of the Lenape people on the banks of the East River here in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, it's the midterms. They're coming up. They're 25 days away when American citizens head to their local polling centre to vote in a series of elections that include all 435 seats in the House of Representatives. 34 out of 100 Senate seats are up for grabs. And I think there's about 36 governor's races uh, running as well, not including a whole bunch of um, up and down the ballot state legislators and dog catchers and all sorts of stuff. Uh, so it's how we sort of sort of get our heads around this as we get ready to um, see this election unfold. Joining me on the line from Washington, D.C. To, is uh, a former Georgia Senate, Senator, sorry, a for, former Georgia Senate runoff director who helped elect not just one Senate candidate, but two. That's two miracles. And in my faith-based institution, that, that qualifies for sainthood. Uh, joining me online once again, Saint Jonah. Welcome back to Socially Democratic. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be here. That's quite the introduction. Sainthood. I need to make sure I put that on my resume. It definitely goes in LinkedIn. Saint Jonah. I think yes. It, I think it's got a good ring to it. I, I don't think there is a Saint Jonah. So you know. No, no. I, I can I can already see them just revising all the all the uh, all the the logs of the history of uh, of saints just to add my face right there. Beautiful. Um, okay, a lot to get through today. And I, the last time we spoke was uh, on the podcast was in January this year. And you kind of did a bit of a report card on the first full year of the Biden administration. Uh, and I went back and had a bit of a listen to the episode. And broadly speaking, I think it was a reasonably positive assessment that you had. There were some concerns around um, some of the results for the Democrats in that 
off-year election in November last year around Virginia and, and, uh, and New Jersey. Since then, um, there was a period there where enthusiasm for Biden and the Democrats kind of waned away to the point where people were thinking there was going to be this sort of uh, this red wave in uh, at the midterms. Uh, but subsequently, things have started to turn around a bit and Democrats are feeling a little bit more optimistic. So I really want to kind of get your sense to begin with, if you were to do a bit of a sort of a broad sweep of what's happened in the past, say, eight months since we last spoke, um, why was the Democrats not looking good going into the midterms and now why are things feeling a little bit better before we then sort of dive into some of the areas where we think they might do well? Yeah. Well, I, I do. I, I think that, you know, my my picture and my view going into the midterms is still a very optimistic one. Um, you know, we we did come off of the heels of the um, governor's race in Virginia and New Jersey that were close and, and, and in another case, unfortunate outcomes. But I really do think that um, what we've seen in the Biden administration is is promises kept, you know, since um, since we spoke, we've had, you know, now Supreme Court Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson. We've had, you know, a series of other wins for the administration. Um, you know, we've had historic votes on gun legislation. You know, the, the student loan debt, debt cancellation um, announcement, the Inflation Reduction Act signed. Um, there's some climate legislation that was also there um, in terms of the list of accomplishments for the Biden administration. So I think what you see um, is the Biden administration continuing to keep their promises to the American people to make um, their everyday lives and the future of our country better. And so I think that that is an absolutely, uh, very much a positive narrative frame for any um, party going into the midterm to say that we are making progress, that the, that the President Biden inherited a country that was reeling from January 6th attacks on the Capitol. Um, and now that he has continued to restore Americans' faith in their democracy, that their elected officials, despite having differences of opinion, can get things done when they work together. Um, and I believe that if I'm a voter going to the polls this November, I want to see, I want to elect more representation of folks who are committed to getting things done and getting legislation passed. The, um, there's a number of things you just mentioned that I want to unpack, unpack them piece by piece, starting with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. This talk, talk to us a bit about what, what exactly is this piece of legislation and why was this so important uh, in terms of helping the Democrats' prospects going into the midterms? Yeah, I mean, I think what you think when you think about the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, there the, the, there's a climate crisis and has been um, for a while. Um, and, you know, the, the Biden administration made a commitment that they wanted to invest in cleaner energy um, and air and, and, and create green jobs. Right. And and not only that, reduce overall emissions. Um, and, and I think that when you think about why that's important in this climate crisis is that we all want to inherit. Um, we want our children to inherit an earth where um where there is safety and security in our natural resources. And so I think what was most important about that is the Biden administration, again, keeping their promises, but also making a commitment to the environment, making a commitment to what needs to happen in order to save our planet. The, it, when we were in DC uh, earlier in the month with the, uh, the Dunn Street delegation and a whole bunch of different meetings that we took with groups like uh, the Center for American Progress, the DNC themselves. Um, we met with a, a journalist, uh, Steve Clemens, um, a bunch of other organisations. The that piece of legislation that came up a lot uh, from those groups talking about the importance that it has in turning around the uh, the fortunes, potentially turning around the fortunes for the Democrats. Um, in order to, but it seemed like that was on its that piece of legislation was kind of on uh, what, what's the, you know, it's like it's, it was on its deathbed. Um, it didn't seem like the Democrats could kind of get their shit together. Um, and then at the last minute, Joe Manchin, senator from West Virginia, uh, kind of throws everyone a curveball. Doesn't see this come. This sort of happens, right? 
Um, talk us through just some of the, the, the challenges that the, the Biden administration has had trying to get pieces of legislation through um, a democratically controlled Congress. Because in Australia, that doesn't make sense to us, right? Because we're, we, we don't, we caucus, like we, we're a binding caucus, our parliamentary. There's no wriggle room here, right? Um, but obviously in the US, it's a lot of a diff- different experience. But I just, you know, I just want to share your thoughts on that and how difficult it was to, to land that success there. Yes, and as we are the the controlling party in Congress now, and um, having having the chambers certainly does facilitate a certain level of um, of legislation creation and, and legislation passage. But we are also a party of ideas. We are also a party of understanding that there are um, there are different ways to do. Um, some of the critical ways to meet the critical needs in our communities, especially as it relates to climate, um, especially as it relates to, to some other domestic policies. You know, there were some who um, in the party who felt like we should make take a more progressive stance on some of the, the policies that we, we passed. There are some who felt that, you know, we needed to do the things that were going to gain us bipartisan support, right? And so I think that in a lot of cases, what you see is us trying to operate in a bipartisan manner and be a party of ideas while also getting things done, right? And so I think that where that tension can often uh, be raised is why is a party with everyone who has the same letter behind their name, D, um, struggling to get legislation passed. And I think it is because the president wants to make sure that he is still building consensus across both chambers and still creating an avenue where he can get more legislation passed, right? And I think what we found is that, you know, he's he, he knows who now is going to work with him and who's not going to work with him. So when you see some of this legislation being pushed through more assertively and seeing us get things done, I think it's the president allowing that time for debate, allowing that time for ideas, allowing that time for opposition, but committed to delivering for the American people. And I didn't actually get to talk about um, the impact on the Inflation Reduction Act on prescription drug prices, which was such a huge part of that legislation. And, you know, if energy, clean energy policy and investing in our, our country's future um, doesn't doesn't get you excited as a as a Democrat as a progressive voting? Then what's happening with prescription drug prices? Who's who who doesn't that affect right? And so I think that when you see kind of the Congress maybe not moving as quickly, maybe not acting as fast, I think what you see is is the president understanding that he is a leader of a party. He's a leader of 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 of, but he's also the leader of the United States of America. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the day, he's got the mandate. To deliver for the American people, and I think he he um, he 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 realizes that I think even more so in this second year of the administration. With your campaign hat on, and if you were a local campaign director for a congressional seat, one that was competitive, or even a you know statewide um, Senate race, geez, it didn't half leave this moving this piece of legislation quite late in the game, and I just wondered about giving you guys on the ground time to take that information and actually let it absorb into the minds of voters, right? Everyone's busy. They're not, no one's sitting there reading the New York Times, everybody, and refreshing updates every 20 minutes, right? So a lot of people out there in the community probably doesn't know about a lot of the good things that are actually in this piece of legislation. And, and there's only, as I said, there's only 40-odd days to go. The, I think when, when did the bill drop? Maybe like a month ago or something? It has, it's not a lot of time. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yes. I mean, in an ideal scenario, we would have much longer runway to message such a key piece of legislation and such a big accomplishment for the administration. Um, but, but here's what I know. Democrats are out on the ground, beating the pavement. They're building massive field operations to talk to voters at their doors to help them to understand that the progress that this, that this administration has made. Um, and I think that's, that's critically important given the amount of time that we have. We need to reach folks in every mode possible. So not only are Democrats um, building ground operations like ones we've seen in the past that have helped elect President uh, Biden, but also helped elect President Obama twice, um, and, and, and the campaigns um, at the top of the ticket in these states are also investing in massive ground game because we know that we need to do that. And what does a massive ground game investment mean? It means more volunteers, 
talking to folks at the doors. And so I, I, I take um, comfort in knowing that there is a, a ground operation that is going to get this message um, through to voters. But we're also using other modes. You know, digital has scaled up tremendously. I can tell you, if Democrats aren't at your doors, they're in your text messages. Because I get about six a day. And they're not just from Senate candidates. They are from local candidates. It's from local organizations who are check, asking folks to check their voter registration, that are asking folks if they've requested their absentee ballots. If they have gotten their absentee ballots, have they mailed them back yet? Um, so we the, the, the attack has to be multimodal, right? We can't just rely on the big machine ads that come out every year. We can't just rely on CNN punditry. We have to get out in the field. And that's what Democrats do best, right? Um, I read an article probably about a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, um, where there was a poll that Brian Kemp um, was up. And they said, well, you must feel good. You must feel confident, right? You're up in the polls. And he said, you can't underestimate their ground game. And I'm like, you're damn right. You're damn right you can't estimate or unestimate our ground game. And and for someone like Brian Kemp with this big machine behind him, right, um, to, to say you can't underestimate their ground game means he knows something that we know, right, which is that enthusiastic Democrats can and will turn out in this election. And Stacey Abrams and her team and Raphael Warnock, Senator Warnock, is doing a fantastic job getting boots on the ground and getting people energized about this election. Um, when we spoke last, uh, the Supreme Court had not passed down their judgment uh, on um, uh, Roe v. Wade, uh, the, the, the Dodd uh, ruling. Uh, what's your sense of that in terms of energising particular cohorts of Democrats to turn out in, uh, in, uh, in the midterms? Yeah. Well, from the moment that decision was leaked and then when it was actually dropped, I had friends who were on the steps of the Supreme Court within hours. And I think that speaks to the energy and the outrage, frankly, that folks feel about that decision. And I think that it is very important to understand that you know, folks are going to turn out in this election, yes, to elect Democrats because we want to keep Democrats in, in power, especially in places, um, you know, where our rights are, are being threatened at the local level. But I think what you also see is that people are energized when they feel like their rights are under attack and when they feel like their freedoms are under attack. And what you saw in this, in this, in this overturning of Roe v. Wade is folks knowing and feeling like their rights are under attack. Um, even for folks who aren't, who maybe didn't always vote for Democrats, you can look and see how these choices are affecting you personally. I mean, I've sat in focus groups over the last couple of months with folks who are not necessarily traditional Democratic-based voters who are really upset about it, who are pissed about it, and who want to figure out ways to fight back and to mobilize. So I think it's been absolutely energizing for our base alongside the amazing things that, that we've been able to, to pass through Congress. Um, but I would absolutely say that there are folks who are turning out um, in response, in part, to that decision. And honestly, the attack on our rights, because this is really not just about that singular decision. It's about saying, okay, first it's Roe v. Wade today. What is it tomorrow, right? When you start attacking precedent from a Supreme Court, it's truly dangerous. It's truly dangerous. You know, I saw, I was reading a number of articles about, you know, the other, the other, what the, the, the spiraling effect can be if the Supreme Court revisits other decisions for, for um, interracial marriage, for things that are, they, they, it sounds crazy that in 2022, we would have been thinking about these things, but here we are. So I think it's definitely energizing uh, for our basis. Um, turning to the Republicans, um, uh, in particular, a guy called uh, Donald Trump, I got a sense that in um, the, the those off-cycle elections that we were talking about earlier, the ones that were held in November last year, Democrats really tried hard to put Trump on the ballot, even though obviously he's, he's not running, but talking, uh, trying to link the Republican candidate they were competing against with that they were close that that person was close to Donald Trump. 
Um, I don't know whether I want to get your thoughts on this. Did they not execute that very well or, or, or what was the story? Because what I'm seeing this time around is that there are a bunch of Republicans that are winning primaries by being close to Trump and then flipping once they've won their primary and distancing themselves from Donald Trump. And we're seeing examples of candidates who have said that during the primaries, oh, that the Trump won the election and then win the primary and then come out and say, no, 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 it was, it was a legitimate election. How much of an impact do we think Donald Trump's going to have in this election? And do, is he going to be, a, uh, is he going to be a, a drag on the ticket for the Republicans? Well, you know, former President Trump has made um, dozens of endorsements this election cycle. I think it will be really interesting to measure the impact on the overall outcome. Um, I think it really shows what disarray the Republicans, what disarray the Republican Party is in right now. Um, do I still think their voters are going to come out and vote? Yes. And so that's why I, I never rely on, oh, their party's in shambles, like we're going to, it's going to be a cakewalk. What we know about the Republican base is that they will often support their candidates regardless. And we, we very well may see that here in, in November. Um, so I think the impact on the base could be in some ways mildly depressed. Um, and, but I don't think it will be tremendously depressed. I do think we still need to be very much vigilant um, about our organizing efforts and continue to bring our message um, to to voters um, through mailboxes, through door to door, because I do think that while you know the the flip flopping um, of some of these endorsed candidates may have an effect, and we we will also see probably Donald Trump on the stump um, somewhere in some state before election day, and I'm excited to see what kind of havoc he wreaks. Um, on that, on 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 the the turnout in that that area, but we also know that you know for all the polarization, there's some there's energy there. There's a lot of folks who are excited to see him out on the trail, who still very much believe the election was stolen, who will turn out for that big lie. So, I I think our caution here um, is not to overstate how how much that flip flopping on election denying will depress their base, because I think that's a, a strategic error that we could make. You mentioned before about the what Democrats are saying on the doors uh, and on the and on uh, at a local level. Uh, I think we talked about this in the last show. Perhaps one of the s- strengths that come out of the Republican campaign in those off cycles was that they did talk about local issues, arguably in a frame that, we, you know, you and I are not going to agree on, particularly around education. But they were still trying to localize their messaging. Is the messages that the Repu- the Democrats, Democratic candidates, are taking it in their congressional seats and maybe even Senate races more localized messages, or are they sticking with the national conversation? What, what, what's your what's your read on this? Well, I do think that you know midterm elections tend to be you know about what the party in power has done, and so I don't think that. In most cases, um, Democrats are going to be able to run from the president entirely. Um, I think that's just, it's, it's unavoidable that they will be tied to him in some way. And so I think that, you know, if I'm a Democrat running locally and for, for you know, for campaigns that are strategizing around this, I do think that folks should embrace um, the victories of this presidency the things that he's done, how it has impacted them. Do I think you should bring them the 25-point list of every accomplishment of this administration? Perhaps not. But if prescription drugs is something that is impacting their lives and their families, which inevitably it is, and those prices going down are, are a benefit to you and your family, then as a Democrat, why am I not making sure that folks know that, mm-hmm. right? Um, because... Midterm elections are all about, is the administration keeping their promise, right? And the surest way to do that is to point to things that impact their everyday lives, impact their pocketbooks, um, and, and say, here's how we've delivered for you. We've, got, we've still got work to do, right? And so it's going to be important for Democrats to thread the needle on issues that folks care about. I don't think it's about running away from, you know, the Democratic Party. I think it's about embracing our victories and making sure that folks know that that was about us championing the things that matter most. Sitting in uh, my hotel uh, watching late night uh, uh, cable TV, particularly MSNBC and and um, and CNN and the like, 
seeing a lot of Democrat surrogates and talking heads coming on and, and you know, talking about democracies on the ballot in this, this midterm election, um, that we need to protect our democracy and all that kind of stuff, which I, you know, I completely understand that. Um, but I'm just wondering if I was an undecided voter or an independent, um, I feel like that's, whilst it's important, it feels like a pretty processy kind of issue and I probably wouldn't really give a shit. Is that message that they're running, and even Stacey Abrams said it the other night as well, is that just to try and mobilise Democrats to come out to get angry about what is it th- what's at stake in terms of our democracy, or is it actually a, a talking point to try and persuade people to come across to the Democratic poll? What's, what, what's the strategy behind that messaging, do you think? Well, I mean, I do think anything that can energize our base is important to, to leverage. I, I do think sometimes, you know, as Democrats, our, our arguments do or our, our dissent can, um, we have to make sure it's reaching voters and that like, and that we're making them care, right? And sometimes that's using fewer words and, and giving it a little punch, right? And I think like as a messaging, as a messaging, on the messaging side of things, I think that oftentimes we get in the weeds with our message. We get, we, the, the arguments get academic. And I think we have to remember that voters are most focused on like, how is this affecting my life? How is this affecting whether I can go vote and it's safe and secure? How is this affecting whether I can go to work and make a decent living? And so I think the further we stray away from those key fundamental beliefs um, that people have about government and what it is and what it does, I think that that, that is when we get into this dangerous territory of being just getting buried, right? Just getting tripped up by our own words. And I think that's where we we lose voters, right? The idea here is to keep people energized, to keep voters energized. And whenever the messaging isn't breaking through and it isn't creating energy and momentum and enthusiasm, um, we've got to think of ways to do that or, or maybe, maybe set those messages aside and focus on the ones that do. Well, since we are talking about democracy being on the ballot and the threat to uh, the, the institutions that uh, that, that um, guide um, the uh, the American uh, Republic, what impact has or do we think Republican efforts and GOP efforts at a state level to continue to undermine the ability for folks to come and vote will have at this election? Obviously. No, actually, I'll shut up there and I'll let you answer that question. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we've we spent all of 2021 pretty much fighting for the right for people who cast ballots in 2020 to vote again. And it is really shameful place that we're in in the year 2022 when we even have to be faced with the reality that someone may go to their polling place and be turned away or told to cast a provisional ballot that won't count or anything even far worse than that. And and when we look at the last calendar year, you know, we had, gosh, like uh, nearly two dozen states that, that passed some law that either restricted um, how folks could vote, so being able to mail in your ballot, restricted the number, the ways that you could receive a ballot, um, the ways that you could return a ballot, um, the restrictions to whether you could vote early. And what we saw was those specific types of restrictions were focused on communities of color, communities that folks didn't want voting. And so I think that now that in in some states where there are new laws on the books, um, I think about Georgia in particular, um, where there are restrictions, I think our next line of defense is continuing to fight back where we can fight back, because I think we've got to fight for our rights, regardless of, uh, of what laws are on the books. But I think we also have to educate folks, uh, again, about how voting may have changed in their community since the last time that they voted. Mm-hmm. And so folks checking their voter registration status to see if they've been purged from the voter rolls in a state like Georgia, um, folks checking to see, okay, when and how can I return my absentee ballot? In an election year where legislature the legislature is not in session, our efforts have to turn to education and organizing. When we can fight back through the through the legal vehicles that we have, let's fight back through legal vehicles that we have. When it comes to the ballot box, when our feet are to the fire as, as Democrats, as organizers, the best tools that we have are education and mobilizing people based on that, that, that education. So um, I do think that there will be an impact here. I think it will be very interesting to see how much of an impact that makes. Um, 
and then what the next legislative session brings and what further litigation yields. Um, but in states where fewer voters are able to vote for any given reason, um, I think it's it's an absolute shame and stain in our democracy. And I think that we should continue to make sure that we can use the legal channels and Congress um, can act um, to make sure that we don't go into another election cycle where this is even a threat. Let's uh, talk about the uh, some of the races that are coming up, starting with the House of Representatives. Uh, all th- 334 of uh, seats are up for grabs um, at this midterm election. Um, you know, how do we feel about uh, the House of Reps broadly? Do, I, don't, I know we don't want to do predictions and things, but... Um, just your insights into that to that election. Do we think that maybe there's a chance that the Democrats can actually hold on to power in the in the House, or is it, or is it just going to be super close and we'll, we won't know until we've counted all the votes? Yes, I think that you know this will be a very tough election cycle. I think we need to keep you know fighting to make sure that we can hold on to as many seats as possible. I think the progress in our country absolutely depends on it. But listen, midterm elections have been traditionally very tough for, you know, the president in power. And so we went into this midterm election for obvious reasons, um, knowing that this was going to be one where we had to keep fighting. And so I think that when you look at, you know, states like Arizona, when you look at states like Florida, um, when you look at states like Iowa, there are some vulnerable seats there. Um, But I do think that we will continue to defend, we will defend those seats because I do think that in those in those places where we are running um, strong campaigns, we will be able to still energize ba- our base and turn out Democrats. So I think that that's incredible. Um, that's an incredible challenge for us this cycle, but I think it's one where we're ready to meet. Uh, I think I heard someone say not uh, just recently that the two biggest challenges for uh, for Democrats going into this particular midterm in terms of the House is, one, the amount of gerrymandering that's going on across the country with new districts, with, with districts being redrawn, uh, and, two, a higher number than usual um, open races in which incumbents, Democratic incumbents, aren't going around again. Well, we met with one of them during the um, Mission Women DC. We met with Ed Perlmutter, who's the outgoing Congress uh man in Colorado, I can't remember what district is, the 10th, I think. Uh, apparently his district's going to be fine, but there are competitive ones in Colorado that, that, that they're worried about. I mean, what's your, is that is that a fair assessment to say that it's one of the, under, two of the underlying problems that the Rep- Democrats are going to face? And it's hard to sort of counter against that? Yeah, I mean, and you're referring specifically to like open seats, like open races, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, where there's an open seat and there's been a sitting incumbent, I think as much of a challenge as an opportunity, frankly, because now you have an entrenched um, Republican incumbent in some cases who isn't going to be sitting in that seat, but in places where we're losing, you know, where we where we may have um, a little bit more of an uphill battle because we have had a Republican in that seat. Um, I think we can take that challenge head on. I think that in those places that we also have an electorate that's ready to see fresh leadership. Right. And so as much as it may be a challenge to think about open seats as a part of our strategy, I think it also presents us a, a, an opportunity um, as well. Let's talk about the Senate. And I've got a bunch of uh, races here that I wanted to get your thoughts on, starting with uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, the uh, the Granite State? Is Pennsylvania the Granite State? I'm gonna... New Hampshire is a Granite State. Yeah. What's Pennsylvania? They're the, what's their thing? This is really, I should never have even opened this can of worms, Janae. This right. is massive. Brotherly, no, it's not brotherly love because that is just Philadelphia. Anyway, it's one of those states. It's the states. I can't remember. Anyway, um, who's the two major candidates? So who are the two Senate candidates running for the two major parties in that particular race? And what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, we have a celebrity doctor um, running in one of the seats. It's almost like kind of mind is blown, but I mean, just having observed um, Mesmet Oz on the stump, I mean, you kind of, it's kind of a bit of a train wreck, right? You know, he's managed to have gaff after gaff. 
He's managed to offend people with pre-existing conditions and illnesses. I mean, this is a man who is kind of a communication dumpster fire. I think that, you know, what we know about candidates on the uh, on on their side is that they it doesn't necessarily mean that they have folks who won't vote for them. I mean, you look at Herschel Walker in Georgia and you'll still have people who walk into the 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 booth and, you know, and 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 vote. Um and so I think we should again not overestimate the the um the suppressive effect on their base. Um, but I think that the the Fetterman campaign has really leveraged the weakness of their candidacy, of the the Oz candidacy, um, and really built on those strengths. I mean, like you were you you were not pressed to find um them using the um him making fun of him having a heart attack as you were not or or as a stroke or a heart attack and and use that um, against him, and it was it was it went on for a couple days, right? And so I think that you see him both playing on the strengths of their own campaign, which is um, doing well, but also um, making a stark contrast and a choice, right? Um, this is a state that went back into our column in 2020. Let's not forget, um, this is a state where we were able to reclaim um, a lot of the um, the 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 support that. Uh, we didn't have in twenty um, in twenty sixteen, and so I think we're we're coming in into this race from a place of strength, um, and so I do believe that if we continue to focus on um, messaging our wins, our accomplishments as a party, continue to energize our base, not forget about our our urban centers and places where um, minority populations who help carry the president of victory. Um, I think that's a, a challenge that we have as a, as a party at times, we, you know, we, we have these big presidential election victories and then we, we fail to run really robust turnout and engagement programs for key constituencies that we need to win. Um, and it is my hope that we aren't making that mistake again, but I do believe that there is um, a path to victory certainly for, um, the Fetterman campaign, and I, I can't wait to see um, how that race pans out. Excellent. That sounds positive. I'm happy to hear that. Uh, the Keystone State is what Pennsylvania is. I knew it was some type hey. of rock. Okay, let's go to a state that's near and dear to your heart, the Peach State. I got that one right, didn't I? Georgia? Thoughts yes, on Georgia? you did. The Peach State. Well, I always love talking about Georgia. Um, I... I love that after working there many election cycles, it's now like ground zero for some of the most exciting races in the country. Um, what a world. Um, but I, I have been watching closely um, the, the, the Abrams um, matchup against Brian Kemp. You know, I think what we've seen is a really strong um, Abrams campaign that is doing everything they need to be doing to build a robust ground operation, to excite voters. Um, Stacy herself was already um, just such an energizing force on the ground to see her on the stump. I mean, I've literally seen her everywhere um, on, um, on social media, just meeting voters where they are at the Pride Parade, at a recent festival that we had, a, a, a concert. Um, and just continuing to to energize folks and just create a stark contrast. I mean, Brian Kemp being a sitting governor who has worked against the interest of everyday Georgians, who's rejected support from the president um, where it would be beneficial to Georgians, uh, really hasn't done himself any favors. And I think that the reckoning here um, is making sure that we have um, someone who is going to represent and advance the interest of all Georgians um, and not be, you know, beholden to special interests, not um, not a allow kind of this smokescreen mirror that he's created, um, that he's, you know, the champion of all people and he wants to do, you know, all these great things and, and protect democracy when in fact he's done just the opposite. Um, I think they've been really great about messaging and exposing that and holding him accountable. And I think that's really important in this race, especially. Um, and the Herschel Walker, um, Senator Warnock matchup, I deeply sigh every time I see that split screen, um, because there really could not be 
if Stacy Stacy Abrams and Brian Kemp is a there's a very clear choice. Um, perhaps even a clearer choice is Reverend Warnock, um, Senator Warnock, and um, Herschel Walker. I mean, you see someone who is wrong on almost every issue, um, has a personal record that is questionable, has family that has even spoken out um, against him, and you see, you know, his relatives coming forward saying, you know, please stop the lying, please stop smearing us, please stop dragging us into this. Um, You really see a campaign that's damaged, and I think that um, he has not shown himself to be someone who Georgians should stand behind. I think what's important to know, again, when we talk about candidates that are flawed and candidates who um, that voters can make a choice between um, two candidates seemingly very clearly, it's important to know that, you know, base support will still turn out, especially since, you know, he's on the ballot with Governor Kemp. And so we may see some really interesting dynamics with who's turning out for both of those races if people are dropping off down the ballot, um, especially on the Republican side. I, The data nerd in me can't wait to look at that data and really look at how people made those choices um, um, for, for Warnock or for um, Herschel Walker um, and Brian Kemp and if they're voting for both. And there's been a lot of conversation about whether there will actually be a split there. So I'm very interested to see it, but I'm incredibly proud of the strong campaigns that um, Stacey and that Senator Warnock have run. Um, the energy is palpable. Um, I'm actually I'm gonna be spending a bit of time in the state here, um, uh, here soon. And I'm just really excited to see the ground operation that we've known these can- campaigns for come back together and really, um, and continue to turn out the vote. Uh, moving across the country to the Silver State in Nevada, the um, the two candidates running there, Catherine Cortez Masto, who's a Democrat, against Adam Laxalt, who's a Republican, who's a Trump-backed election denier. Any thoughts on uh, Nevada? Well, I mean, whenever you have um, an election denier on the ballot and you have someone who is running such a strong campaign like Catherine Cortez Masto, who has a proven record as a leader, um, you know, despite the history in the most recent election, um, I think you see a proven leader against an election denier. I think people are, are fed up with that narrative. I think people are ready to to send election deniers back to wherever it is they, they came from and um, ready to reelect a leader who has proven herself. Um, I don't think it's just about her being the opposition or being the better choice. She's also a proven leader. And so I think, you know, this will be a close race to watch, um, especially given the recent polling that's come out. Um, but I think you also see a really um, a really well-run and strong campaign behind a great candidate. And then moving across to Arizona, I can't remember what the nickname is for Arizona. I'm going to leave this one to you, Janae, if you know. Uh, Mark Kelly's a Democrat running against... Sun Valley State or something? Desert State? Yeah, let's just call it Desert State. Um, uh, Mark Kelly is a Democrat in the Senate uh, running against uh, Blake Masters, who's also another Trump-backed candidate. Yes, you know, with these Trump-backed candidates, again, I think that you'll see... Um, you'll see just a very, a very much a rejection of the false narrative that they've that they've supported and that they've perpetuated for the last year. I mean, what a long time to keep a lie going. Um, they should all be exhausted. But you know, you see that Mark Kelly, from the time he declared for office, has always run a strong campaign. I mean, I remember in the first election um, for Mark Kelly just the just the level of operation that he built um even in his last election was just really impressive and we're seeing that same um that same operation come together i mean right now in the polling he's doing very well um and and leading and so i i expect that to fully um to to maintain and to hold um so i'm very excited to see the outcome from memory, Blake Masters is one of those Republicans that has changed their tune in terms of they in the primary they were saying they're an election denier and now they've seen the light and discovered that Biden actually is the president. Yes, I do recall 
I do recall him being one of those. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah. How, I'm just interested in that and how that played it was, out. It was, there was, um, it was backtracking on that issue and I think an abortion. Right. I just don't, I just don't. Just, just, like, they scrubbed a web page or something where it was like, he right. had it on his, and, and, and I, I don't remember the full story, but I just remember him getting slammed on that. And I was like, well, from somebody who denied that an election was legitimate, what 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 is our basis of moral ground here? <laughs> Someone spent a year saying something was fake that was true, and now we're surprised when we find out that they're lying and misleading people about other things. That's kind of shocking to me that we're shocked, but here we are. Just rule one hundred and one in politics: don't try and walk both sides of the street on an issue. I just don't see. I just can't see how this works out. But we'll find out, I guess, in a couple. Of I mean, it's it's it, it's it's the kind of opportunistic politics that you know, that Republicans should be rejecting. Um, but, you know, we, we've seen that folks' allegiance to some of these flawed candidates is kind of baffling in some regards mm-hmm. because you're just like, how are people standing behind these folks when they see in plain sight what they're about? But I think it just speaks to the state of the Republican Party right now. Um, and so, you know, we'll let them have that. Uh, Wisconsin, let's go to the Midwest. Uh, Ron Johnson is the Republican incumbent in the Senate as uh, uh, being challenged by Mandela Barnes. Um, this one feels like for the Democrats, this is, a, not, I won't say a long shot, but a tough one to win. I just want to get, I want to get your thoughts on this one. Yes, I'd say one, Mandela Barnes is one of my favorite candidates, uh, this cycle. So I've been really excited to watch, um, and while the polling there has been relatively tight um, over the last couple of uh, polls I've seen, um, you know, within a couple percentage points, I think that, you know, by some folks' accounts, Ron Johnson should be running away with this race, right? Mm-hmm. And so when people say, well, will this be a close race? When it is a close race right now, I think that, you know, whichever way this goes, it'll be tight on either side. And so I don't think we should write this off as, as being an impossible um, race for um, for the Barnes campaign. I've actually seen, I've actually been impressed with the, the amount of uh, traction nationally that he's received, the amount of support um, that he's received, not just by folks within the state, um, but also just how he's positioned himself um, nationally as well. So I do think that there's tremendous um, tremendous excitement about this campaign, and I'm really excited to see the outcome. Um, and the last one, Ohio. Tim Ryan is uh, the Democrat running against Jody Vance. Um, Ohio's been a weird state recently. Obviously, it seems to be going more and more red. Um, what's your thoughts on uh, on the Buckeye State? The Buckeye State. Now, that one I did know. Um, <laughs> you know, we... What I can say is, yes, I think the 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 math is very it's it's tough to math the math out there in Ohio. Um, it has definitely been a challenge for us recently. Um, I will say that if the amount of times a week I get a text from Tim Ryan is in the indication of the strength of his ground game, um, I'm impressed. Um, I can say with certainty that I received no less than three texts a week. Um, you know, I think this, this will be continue to be a tough race um, and one to watch. Um, I do think that um, Tim Ryan is somebody who I think is very much representative of Ohio um, in a way that has appeal to key voters there. And so when you think about a candidate um, that I think can really bring people together, who has that appeal, who has that sensibility to lead, I do think Tim Ryan has that appeal. And not to say that we're in an age of sensibility, because certainly, you know, we're in interesting times. I do think for a candidate that in a state like Ohio knows that state and can navigate that state like a true political professional, I think Tim Ryan has done uh, a pretty good job. It's a uh, a poisonous nut, the Buckeye. Just a, I just got a text. I just got an email from the Mandela Barnes campaign. Look at that. Their ears must have been burning because they knew you were talking about them. Yes. Um, the any, algorithm is working. Any other races that you just want to throw out there that we haven't covered? Just uh, I'm pretty on the spot there, I know. But um, is there anything else you wanted to make mention before we wrap up? Well, I, as someone who really um, who has loves the South, um, 
especially. I watch all the races in the South, and I think one, a, a handful to watch are still the Sherry Beasley race in North Carolina um, with Richard Burr retiring. I think, you know, a lot of folks, um, you know, with, with such a heavy hitter retiring, I think people are like, what kind of dynamics is this open seat raise? But when I've looked at the polling consistently in North Carolina, you've really seen Sherry Beasley hold her own. And I think that that's really important because there's always this question of viability when you think about these campaigns and are they a long shot? And then when you see this polling consistently um, that looks strong, I really feel like it's a great signal and a great sign. So I'll continue to watch that race. Um, And then I'm I'm always interested to see what's happening in Florida. Isn't everyone interested to see what's happening in Florida? It remains um, an interesting state electorally um, with Val Demings in the Senate race there. Um, and both women, um, if elected, would be the first, um, there would be a first in their right. Um, and so we have a lot of history that we can make this election cycle. So I'm really excited about it. Well, it's very comprehensive as always. St. Janae, we do appreciate your time. <laughs> God bless you uh, on the on the show today. Um, and it was also great to see you in DC earlier in the month uh, and coming and having dinner uh, with us with the delegation. And That's fingers it. crossed we get a result, uh, both in the Senate and the House, uh, the governor's races, particularly in your home state of Georgia and across any other sort of state races and, you know, dog catchers and treasures and everything else. It's just, we hope it's a great result for the Democrats uh, come the second Tuesday in November. Wonderful. Well, I look back, I look forward to coming back if you'll have me to talk about these outcomes because I myself am going to be digging into every poll, top line, exit memo that exists because I am fascinated. But I'm very excited about this election cycle. I'm excited to see the strong campaigns that folks are running and um, excited to see this to the finish. Well, tonight, uh, get your data nerd hat on because you're definitely going to be coming back after uh, the results so we can unpack exactly what happened. Thank you so much and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Socially Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And to get all the latest on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on.